Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of domestic abuse and stalking that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. 26-year-old Susan Powell's hands shook as she wrote the date, June 28, 2008, on a piece of notebook paper. She knew these things should be done in a more official manner. Most people talk to their family before writing their last will and testament. Most people signed it with a lawyer present. Yet there she was, writing out her wishes all alone, completely in secret. She took a deep breath and tried to steady her nerves, but found herself at a loss for words. Her will was more than a formality. It was a confession that things inside her house were not okay. Even though she'd tried so hard for so long to act as if they were, she couldn't pretend any longer. She had to make sure her boys would be taken care of. She pressed the pen back to the page and wrote in a clear, deliberate script. For family and friends of Susan, all except Josh Powell. I don't trust him. I want it documented somewhere that there is extreme turmoil in our marriage. Tears streamed down her face before she was even halfway done. It had been almost a decade since she'd lived a life of her own. It was freeing to act on her own without trying to compromise with an unloving husband. But it was also terrifying. Susan wrote, if anything happened to her, she wanted her parents to have custody of her sons. Josh couldn't be trusted with them. Before she signed and sealed the will, she finished with one last chilling line. If I die, it may not be an accident, even if it looks like one. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week, we'll explore Susan Powell's rocky relationship with her husband, Josh. Susan jumped into marriage quickly, causing her to miss the numerous red flags that would soon threaten their relationship. Unfortunately, by the time she realized her mistake, the wheels of a terrifying real-life murder mystery were already in motion. Next week, we'll see how Susan and Josh's young children reacted to one of their parents going missing. We'll also discuss the police investigation, which found the truth too late and the horrifying crime that destroyed the Powell family forever. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. 
Susan Cox first laid eyes on Josh Powell in November of the year 2000, when she went to a singles event for members of the Church of Latter-day Saints. Although she was only 19 years old, Susan made no bones about the fact that she was looking for a good Mormon husband. When she started chatting with Josh, a confident, outspoken 24-year-old, it looked like she'd met a man with potential. To Susan, Josh seemed like a mature partner she could count on to take care of her and their future children. To Josh, Susan was a beautiful woman who showed more interest in him than anyone else ever had before. Their romance moved fast. Within two months, they were engaged. Susan's mother, Judy, suggested her daughter take a few years to date and have fun before committing to marriage, but Susan didn't listen. She was more than ready to start a family. Before I continue with Susan's psychology, please note I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. Susan desperately wanted to get married, which likely clouded her judgment early on. She was deeply committed to her Mormon faith and assumed that Josh was a good man based on his religious affiliation. However, he was much less pious than she was. According to a 2020 study published in the journal Psychology of Religion and Spirituality, religion can be a unifying factor in relationships, but it can also be divisive, especially when beliefs aren't shared or when religion encourages harmful beliefs like restrictive gender roles for wives. Because faith was more important to Susan than to Josh, their relationship was threatened from the start. And because Susan believed in traditional Mormon values, such as trusting in and following one's husband, she was more vulnerable to Josh's controlling behavior. The fact that they only spent a few months dating further put Susan and Josh at risk. Studies suggest that shorter courtship periods increase the risk of marital dissatisfaction. In his research, Psychologist Dr. Scott Randall Hansen found that divorce rates were highest among couples who dated for less than six months before tying the knot. Susan's family understood that the odds weren't exactly in the young couple's favor. Josh had trouble interacting with others. He talked constantly about himself and didn't seem to care what anyone else had to say. Susan saw him as confident but to others, his loud voice and commanding tone were arrogant. Susan's family and friends believed Josh was too self-centered to be the kind of man Susan wanted. Nevertheless, Susan had her heart set. She knew they were moving quickly, but she had faith that Josh was a good person. Though he wasn't as involved in the Church of Latter-day Saints as she was, he agreed to attend services with her and get married in the church. As long as they were both committed to God, Susan believed she and Josh could make it through anything. On April 6, 2001, the couple was married and Susan Cox became Susan Powell. Unfortunately, their life together didn't begin as smoothly as Susan hoped. In her rush to secure a husband, she had ignored a major problem with Josh. He was practically incapable of keeping a job Employers were troubled by Josh's arrogance. Josh considered himself above almost every job he secured and openly talked down to his coworkers and superiors. He was difficult to train because he thought he was always right. 
When Susan first met him, Josh's narcissism seemed like confidence rather than self-absorption. It was likely this exact misconception that got him through job interviews as well. He could always manage to get hired, but after a few weeks, employers were sick of his negative attitude. Because of this, his resume was a jumble of random short-lived jobs, and it was difficult for him to secure positive recommendations. When he and Susan got married, Josh was working for a furniture assembly company. Soon, however, he was fired. Their expenses fell entirely on Susan. Though she had steady work as a hairdresser, she wasn't able to keep up with all the bills on her own. When their savings ran out, the couple was forced to move in with Josh's father, Steve, in Puyallup, Washington. The situation was far from comfortable. Steve was already housing his three other adult children, and there were no extra rooms remaining. Josh and Susan fashioned the dining area into a bedroom, hanging up sheets for some semblance of privacy. It wasn't perfect, but 21-year-old Susan tried to make the best of things. If it meant she could work and save money for a while, she thought she could handle the close quarters. At least until she realized what her father-in-law was up to. Susan stood in front of the bathroom mirror, her mouth hanging open as she brushed mascara onto her eyelashes. She loved makeup, but felt nervous about wearing too much, worrying it was vain to draw attention to herself. On the other hand, she did make better tips at the salon when she added a touch of color to her lips. She reached for a tube of pink lip gloss from her makeup bag. As she did, she caught a glimpse of a shadow in the hallway. She called out, letting whoever it was know that she would be out in just a minute. But the shadow didn't budge. Susan tried to go back to applying her makeup, but she couldn't shake the feeling that someone was standing just outside the bathroom door. She called out again, and this time the shadow moved, slowly shrinking from her view. Susan peeked down the hallway and caught a glimpse of Steve silently turning the corner to escape her view. He was clutching a video camera in his hands. Unbeknownst to Susan, Steve had a long history of voyeurism and harassment. He carried a camcorder with him almost constantly, recording footage of women and girls that he would later use to fuel his sexual fantasies. When Susan and Josh moved into Steve's house, the 53-year-old man became obsessed with his 21-year-old daughter-in-law. She didn't realize it at first, but Steve videotaped her nearly every time she left her makeshift bedroom. He took used cotton balls and tampon applicators from the bathroom trash and kept her underwear in Ziploc bags that he labeled and dated. He stole her clothing from the laundry and laid it out on his bed, pretending she was there lying beside him. Soon after Susan and Josh moved in, Steve became more brazen. He followed Susan everywhere she went around the house with his camcorder, asking her to pose and smile for him. One day, he even tried to kiss her. Susan was disturbed by Steve and went straight to her husband for help. But Josh seemed remarkably unaffected by his father's behavior. 
Although Steve was clearly at fault, Josh made Susan feel like a fool for being concerned. Susan reluctantly decided to let the matter drop and instead focused on getting out of the house once and for all. After living there for about three weeks, Josh and Susan both got jobs at an assisted living facility, then moved out on their own once again. Although Josh and Susan now had their own place, Susan still couldn't avoid Steve. He sat in his car and videotaped her coming in and out of work. When she was home, she kept all the blinds shut for fear that her father-in-law was lurking just outside, watching her. All the while, Josh continued to act as if nothing was wrong, either minimizing or refusing to talk about Steve's behavior altogether. That finally changed in 2003, when Steve cornered Susan and confessed his love for her. Susan was shocked and disgusted by the fact that he actually thought she might reciprocate his feelings. She turned him down, then immediately told Josh that they needed to get as far away from his father as possible. Finally, in January 2004, Josh agreed to move nearly 900 miles away to a suburb of Salt Lake City called West Valley City, Utah. After the move, Susan secured a job at Wells Fargo while Josh continued to look for work. Though things were far from perfect, Susan felt optimistic about their future. Josh promised to break off all contact with his father, and with Steve out of the way, Susan thought they could finally build the marriage she wanted. A year later, 23-year-old Susan and 28-year-old Josh felt settled into their new community. They made friends with some of their neighbors, growing especially close to Kiersey and John Hellowell, who lived down the street. The two couples often spent evenings together, playing board games or watching movies at each other's houses. While Kiersey and John got along well with Susan, they only tolerated Josh. Like many others, they found him to be loud and overbearing. They put up with him only because he and Susan were a package deal. Susan knew Josh had problems connecting with others, but she was a fixer. She loved having married friends and pushed Josh to be more open to other people. She was determined to mold her husband into the loving partner, provider, and father she wanted him to be. Ultimately, Susan believed that having a child would spur Josh to be more responsible and reliable. She had imagined being a mother since she was a little girl and was already impatient to expand their family. In the summer of 2004, her dream came true. Susan was pregnant and she couldn't have been more ecstatic. But once again, Josh got in the way of her happiness. Coming up, tensions rise as Susan and Josh start their family. Don't forget to follow Haunted Places Ghost Stories for the spookiest thrillers ever imagined, collected from all around the world and all throughout time. Alastair Murden brings a new story to life every Thursday. Follow Haunted Places Ghost Stories, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. When Susan Cox, a devout member of the Church of Latter-day Saints, was just 20 years old, she married 24-year-old Josh Powell, 
Although Josh had trouble interacting with others and couldn't keep a job, Susan saw him as a confident older man whom she could rely on. Unfortunately, their union got off to a rocky start when Josh's father, Steve, stalked and harassed Susan. To escape him, the couple moved to Utah where Susan hoped she and Josh could start a family together. In the summer of 2004, soon after settling into their new home, Susan discovered she was pregnant. 22-year-old Susan beamed when she told Josh that they were going to be parents. Josh was excited too, but insisted on making an obligatory call to his father to spread the news. Despite his father's history of harassment, he claimed it wouldn't be fair to keep Steve out of the loop. Susan was highly uncomfortable with Josh's decision. Steve was creepy and she didn't want him anywhere near her children, especially if she had a daughter. Josh, however, seemed to think everything would be fine. He called his father who apparently didn't understand why Susan refused to deliver the news herself. The experience was troubling, but Susan soon had too much on her mind to dwell on her father-in-law. In early 2005, she gave birth to a son named Charlie. And just like she'd hoped, having a child did seem to kick Josh into gear. He got a real estate license and sold a few houses. It seemed like a promising new career. On the outside, it looked like Susan and Josh's lives were coming together. Josh was finally making money so Susan could embrace her dream life as a mother with a stable home life. Neighbors and members of the church likely saw them as a beautiful and engaging young couple. Behind closed doors, however, things were not what they seemed. Although Susan loved being Charlie's mother, she hated being Josh's wife. They'd had financial problems ever since they got married. When they fought, Josh got loud and mean. Susan always believed things would get better once they had children, but their home life was as rocky as ever and it didn't show any signs of improving. Susan's friends described Josh as controlling and emotionally abusive. It was great that he got his real estate license, but he ended up spending more money on his new career than he was earning. And Josh had almost complete control over their finances. He gave her a small allowance, kept track of what she bought, and made sure she had to go through him to make any large purchases. Anytime she deviated from his wishes, he'd yell cruel insults in her face. Susan was distraught, but she refused to give up on the relationship. She'd made a vow to stay with Josh until death. In her faith, marriage was a sacred bond and her identity as a wife and mother was more important to her than anything else. Leaving wasn't an option. So she turned towards work, parenting and hobbies like gardening and crochet to keep her mind off her problems. For a while, it seemed Susan had weathered the worst of the storm. Josh, while still controlling, tried to be involved with Susan and Charlie. In 2006, Susan found out she was pregnant with their second child. Early the next year, she gave birth to another boy, Brayden, and the Powell family was complete. Shortly after Brayden was born, Josh decided he needed to advertise his real estate services more publicly. 
he agreed to pay over $80,000, money he and Susan didn't really have, for a promotion in the Yellow Pages and on city bus benches. When the advertisement was released, however, Josh claimed his phone number was printed incorrectly and refused to pay what he owed. Against Susan's wishes, Josh, who was at that point $200,000 in debt, filed for bankruptcy. After this, Josh stayed home to care for Charlie and Brayden while Susan went back to work at Wells Fargo. According to Josh's sister, Jennifer, it was around this time that he started regressing. Josh felt supremely emasculated by his inability to provide for his family. Perhaps to compensate for his feelings of failure, he wrenched more control away from his wife. They needed extra money, so he unilaterally decided to sell one of their cars. Of course, instead of giving up his own vehicle, he sold Susan's. She was forced to bike seven miles to and from work each day and asked him for rides anytime she needed to go somewhere further away. Meanwhile, he laid back at home, his car sitting idle in the driveway. Josh's actions fit a pattern of behavior known as coercive control. Sociologist Dr. Evan Stark describes this as malevolent conduct displayed almost exclusively by men, which is used to dominate women. Coercive control has three important tactics, intimidation, isolation, and control. Coercive control can be particularly complicated because it sometimes exists independently of battering or other behaviors generally associated with domestic violence. Victims of coercive control might not equate individual acts of intimidation with a larger pattern of abuse, meaning they may not believe they are even being victimized. According to Dr. Stark, coercive control prevents women from freely developing their personhood, which can lead them to depend on their partner for a sense of identity. Although Susan was upset by Josh's actions, she didn't seem to view herself as a victim of abuse. She remained remarkably dedicated to making her marriage work, possibly in order to salvage her identity as a wife. She went to the church bishop for personal guidance and begged Josh to go with her to marriage counseling. Of course, he refused, claiming it wasn't worth it. Susan was crushed. It seemed like Josh didn't care about their relationship at all. Susan tried to ignore the burning in her legs as she pedaled her bicycle home. She only had another mile to go, but it was all uphill, and she was already exhausted from a long day at work. She fixed her eyes straight ahead and pushed hard. She was a master of moving forward, even when things felt impossible. She knew she could make it up the hill, but in moments as painful as this one, it was difficult not to think about the car she once had. It was even harder not to resent the man who sold it. Susan wiped the sweat from her brow. If only Josh could see her pedaling so furiously, she thought, he would let her take his car to work. He was so selfish. It was like he enjoyed seeing her come home exhausted, too tired to argue with him and too angry to want his attention. Susan blinked away tears as she reached the top of the hill. She didn't have any energy left. It was starting to feel like her marriage wasn't worth fighting for anymore. 
While Josh and Susan's relationship continued to deteriorate, she kept most of the details to herself. Susan's friends and family had no idea what happened when she was alone with her husband. But it was clear to them that Josh kept tabs on Susan's whereabouts, controlled her money, isolated her from others, and often spoke to her in cruel and derogatory ways. Eventually, Susan told her friends that she was afraid to file for divorce and take the children. She feared Josh would be willing to do anything to get Charlie and Brayden back. She reportedly even worried that her husband was mentally ill and pushed him to seek therapy or mood-stabilizing medication. As time went on, things only got worse. According to Susan's personal journals, Josh soon became entirely uninterested in her sexually. She suspected he was looking at pornography, which was strictly forbidden in her religion. When she tried to check his computer for proof, however, her investigation was halted by firewalls Josh had erected to prevent anyone from viewing his search history. Attempting to address the problems proved fruitless. Perhaps most distressing to Susan, Josh stopped attending church. On Sundays, he tried to convince their sons, then just one and three years old, that church was boring. He even offered to give the boys cake if they skipped services and stayed home. Josh's break from the church made Susan rethink their entire relationship. Her religion was central to her sense of self. She didn't think she could be with a man who didn't share her faith, yet she felt completely trapped. Divorce is generally looked down on in Mormon circles. Susan was prepared to try everything and anything to fix her marriage before resorting to a separation. But no matter how hard she tried, her husband was dead set on making sure their relationship didn't work. By the summer of 2008, things were worse than ever. 32-year-old Josh gave 26-year-old Susan a strict spending limit on her own money. She was allowed just $100 a week for the family's groceries and her personal expenses. The only place Susan felt safe was at church. She had a group of close girlfriends who she confided in, including her neighbor Kiersey and a woman named Giovanna. In one email, Susan told a friend she wanted to get out of her marriage, but quote, I'm too afraid of the consequences, losing my kids, him kidnapping them, divorce or actions worse on his part. It was unclear exactly what she meant by worse actions, but by mid-2008, everyone could tell Susan wasn't just unhappy with her husband, she was afraid of him. At that point, Susan's friends and family told her it was time to seriously consider a separation. Even the church bishop agreed that she should contact a divorce lawyer just to explore her options. Susan took the bishop's advice. At the suggestion of her attorney, she recorded a video of her and Josh's home that documented their assets. If they ever separated, the tape would help make sure she got half of their property. She also handwrote a will in which she requested that in the event of her death, her parents receive custody of Charlie and Brayden. It served as the clearest piece of evidence that Susan believed Josh was capable of violence. She wrote that if she suffered a sudden death, 
it may not be an accident. She was also afraid because Josh had convinced her to take out a $2.5 million life insurance policy, which included each member of the family. In complete secrecy, Susan locked the video and the will in a safe deposit box. She prepared to make further preparations for a divorce, but then all of a sudden, Josh's attitude changed. In one of Susan's emails to her friends from summer 2008, she wrote that Josh agreed to try counseling. After a few meetings, he seemed more open and even started initiating more physical intimacy. He still refused to go to church, but the small changes were a welcome start. Susan was hopeful, but she'd been burned too many times to truly believe Josh's new behavior would last. Sure enough, as soon as their counselor told Josh to analyze and deconstruct his controlling behavior, he stopped attending meetings. Susan continued to go on her own, hoping she could somehow single-handedly save their relationship. While she went to work, church, and counseling, 32-year-old Josh stayed home with Charlie and Brayden. He kept a close eye on Susan's activities, but shared very little about his own. Near the end of 2008, 27-year-old Susan learned that while she was out of the house, Josh spent hours talking to his father on the phone. Susan was furious and hurt. Steve had stalked her, terrified her, and violated her privacy. She believed that Josh cut off contact with his father after they moved to Utah, but he never had. Now the two of them seemed even closer than they'd been before. When Susan confronted Josh, he told her that Steve hadn't really meant anything by his professions of love. He tried once again to downplay Steve's disturbing behavior and acted like Susan was wrong for wanting to distance herself from him. Susan was finally fed up. She'd given everything she had to the marriage while Josh took advantage of her in every way possible. At last, she gave her husband an ultimatum. If his treatment of her didn't improve by the next year, she was going to leave him. He had until their ninth anniversary on April 6, 2010 to clean up his act. Josh flew into a rage, threatening to destroy Susan if she even tried to leave. Then after his initial outburst, he suddenly turned cold. He withdrew from Susan, hardly speaking to her at all. His excuse was always that he was too busy to talk, though with what, Susan didn't know. In reality, Josh was still spending hours each week on the phone with his father. He turned to Steve for refuge as his marriage broke down. He also started trying to learn a trade, perhaps to become more financially independent from Susan. He fiddled with his computer constantly and asked their neighbor Kiersey's husband, John, to teach him how to write code. When he wasn't talking on the phone or programming, Josh watched countless episodes of fictional crime investigation shows on television. That December, he accompanied Susan to a Christmas party. While there, he spoke to one of her coworkers about the crime shows he liked, and the conversation quickly strayed from the realm of fiction. 
Josh described to the stranger how he could get away with the perfect murder, telling him that the best place to hide a body was in one of the thousands of abandoned mine shafts across Utah. The man found the comments deeply unsettling, but had no idea how serious Josh might have been. Over the next year, Josh slipped further away from reality. Susan overheard him telling Charlie and Brayden, just two and four years old, that mommy is evil. It became more difficult for Josh and Susan to hide their marital problems from others. When one of Susan's coworkers and friends, a woman named Amber, offered to take family photos for the pals in October of 2009, the troubles were obvious from the start. After Amber asked Josh to put his arm around his wife, he became stiff and awkward. She suggested Susan and Josh kiss in a photograph, but he flatly refused. He couldn't bring himself to be affectionate, even for the half-second flash of Amber's camera. Shortly after the photo shoot, Susan started showing up to work feeling nauseous. Although Josh and Susan rarely had sex, she took a pregnancy test in case she was having morning sickness. The test came back negative. At the time, the illness was inexplicable, but soon Susan's friends would suspect her husband had something to do with it. Up next, Josh crosses a line with unspeakable consequences. Now, back to the story. After declaring bankruptcy in 2007, Josh Powell's mental state deteriorated rapidly. He became extremely controlling and cruel towards his wife, Susan. After years of suffering, Susan gave Josh an ultimatum. If he didn't get his act together by their ninth anniversary on April 6, 2010, she was going to leave him. In October of 2009, six months before their anniversary, 27-year-old Susan became inexplicably ill, suffering from frequent nausea with no apparent cause. Susan's friend Amber later alleged that 33-year-old Josh frequently made Susan organic or fermented beverages. It would have been easy for him to slip something into his wife's drinks, though it's impossible to prove this now. Josh's behavior around that time, however, was undeniably suspicious. In the previous year, he finally managed to find a full-time job doing computer work for a trucking firm. Suddenly, he was no longer dependent on his wife for a stable income. At least, that's how he might have seen things. In Susan's eyes, he was certain to be fired sooner or later. But it's possible that having his own money made Josh see Susan as more expendable than ever before. He was still in contact with his father, refused to attend church services, and remained obsessively controlling. Susan's close friends knew her marriage was in shambles. They feared that as April 6, 2010 grew closer, Josh might take extreme measures to keep Susan from leaving him. Research suggests that these fears were not unfounded. According to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, leaving an abuser is the most dangerous time for a victim of domestic violence. 
They also state that according to interviews with men who murdered their wives, either threats of separation by their partner or actual separation were most often the precipitating events that led to the murder. In Josh's case, it seems clear that he feared losing control over Susan and was willing to go to extreme lengths to maintain power over her. He told Susan he would destroy her if she tried to file for divorce, but Susan was reaching the end of her rope. She was determined to leave Josh. Susan sat on the floor, idly playing blocks with Charlie and Brayden. She should have been happy to connect with her sons, but she was too preoccupied to appreciate the moment. All she could think about was Josh working late again. Once he arrived, Susan knew she'd get an earful about how much money she spent at the grocery store. It was stupid, really. A few extra dollars wouldn't be a big deal as long as Josh could manage to keep his job. She was on edge all the time. Living with Josh made her so anxious. She looked back at Charlie and Brayden. They'd heard so many awful fights. They'd listened to their father call their mother terrible things. They deserved a better home, one full of love, where the parents set a good example. Susan didn't care how much Josh pretended to change. On their ninth anniversary, she would be gone. As Susan doubled down on her plans to file for divorce, she stayed close to her friends. They were the only people in Utah who she could trust to look out for her. Kiersey, Amber, Giovanna, and other people from the church checked up on Susan regularly. On December 6, 2009, Giovanna dropped by the home for a surprise visit in the afternoon. Josh seemed more jovial than usual. Although he didn't usually cook, he offered to make pancakes and immediately set to work in the kitchen while the woman talked in the living room. A short while later, he brought out plates of food for Charlie, Brayden, Giovanna, and Susan. Josh placed each plate deliberately, as if it was important that nobody eat pancakes meant for anybody else. About an hour later, Susan started to feel tired and nauseous. Giovanna didn't understand why Susan felt so sick. They'd eaten the exact same meal and she felt fine. Susan tried to convince her friend that it was no big deal. She'd been feeling ill a lot lately, but when she started throwing up, Giovanna headed home worried. She had no idea it would be the last time she ever saw Susan. After Giovanna left, Susan lay down to take a nap. Around 6 p.m., Josh dressed four-year-old Charlie and two-year-old Brayden in puffy winter coats, strapped them into their car seats, and drove to a nearby hill where they could sled in the freshly fallen snow. Josh's blue minivan pulled back into the driveway between 8 and 8.30 p.m. It's impossible to know precisely what happened inside the Powell's home that night, but one neighbor reported hearing yelling around 2 a.m. According to the witness, a male voice demanded, get in the car. A female voice replied, no, you're going to hurt me if I do. The yelling then abruptly stopped and was followed by the loud screech of the minivan peeling out of the driveway. 
The neighbor, assuming that the pals had simply gotten into a particularly bad argument, didn't call the police. Nobody knows exactly where the pals went that night. All that is certain is neither Susan nor Josh showed up for work the following morning, Monday, December 7th. No one dropped Charlie and Brayden off at daycare either. It was very unusual for Susan and Josh to miss phone calls. When family and friends couldn't get in touch, those who knew the state of their marriage imagined the worst. The entire Powell family was reported missing that same morning. With the permission of Josh's sister and mother, West Valley City Police broke into the Powell family home to search for clues. The first thing they noticed is that the radio was on, playing loudly. Then they found Susan's keys, purse, and wallet in the master bedroom. She'd either left in a hurry or never meant to leave at all. In the living room, two box fans blew on a recently shampooed couch. The upholstery was still damp. Josh's sister felt her stomach drop. Someone cleaned that couch just hours before police arrived. Officers searched the surrounding area. Just behind the couch, on a small patch of tile, were tiny droplets of blood. Something had happened in the Powell's house on the night of December 6th. Police, family, and friends continued to call Susan and Josh's cell phones, desperate to know what went wrong. They were frantic, especially because no one knew where four-year-old Charlie and two-year-old Brayden were. Finally, at around 3 p.m., hours after they were reported missing, Giovanna finally got a hold of Josh Powell. He insisted that he had no idea where his wife had gone. According to him, Susan simply disappeared without a trace. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back Wednesday with part two of Susan and Josh's story. We'll see how the police investigation ended in tragedy and a vicious crime destroyed the Powell family forever. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Crimes of Passion, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Karis Allen, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Hey, Parcasters. Starting October 1st, we're bringing you the scariest, most hair-raising ghost stories ever imagined. Every Thursday on the all-new original series, Haunted Places, Ghost Stories, 
Alastair Murden summons a new spine-tingling tale of wraiths, phantoms, and chilling apparitions. These stories come from all over the world, including Japan, India, the UK, and even ancient Rome. Don't miss stone-cold classics like The Kit Bag by Algernon Blackwood, a sinister account of a condemned murderer's final wish, and the lengths he'd go to fulfill it. And The Miserere, a Spanish tale of a wandering musician who hears a terrifyingly beautiful song in a burned-out monastery and is doomed to capture its notes until he dies. You can find and follow Haunted Places, Ghost Stories, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, October is our favorite month and one of our busiest. So make sure to search Parcast Network in the Spotify search bar to see all our new shows.